Good morning. Thank you all for being here. Glad you could be here. Um, if you could take out your notebooks and flip them over. I'm going to read the purpose of Wellspring. To equip and encourage the women of Grace Bible Church to shepherd their hearts towards Jesus Christ with the Word of God so that they live gospel-transformed lives, thus strengthening the church in its gospel purpose. And so I'm going to bring you the Wellspring Disciplines with a term or an idea or a word in mind. And that word is self-care. And Melissa's prayer was a nice segue into that. So self-care is a common buzzword. It's everywhere these days and we can't escape it. By definition, it's a multidimensional, multifaceted process of purposeful engagement in strategies that promote healthy functioning and enhance well-being. Besides it being a very popular term and promoted just about everywhere, it's often more subtly brought to our attention as well. About 15 or 20 years ago, before that word was popular, my dad, who passed away last year, used to ask about this. And he didn't know the term self-care, nor would he have used it had he known it, but he would say, Aaron, what do you do for you? After I'd given him the rundown of the family. And he would ask this out of concern for me, but this question or this idea of self-care can lead my heart, our hearts, to a place of discontentment if we're not careful to shepherd our hearts. So I used to rack my brain and say, uh, I went to the store alone. Uh, I went to a mom's class. I had a date night a month ago. <laughs> I really was frustrated by this question and this idea, and he said it just about every time. He asked it just about every time I talked to him. Um, but it caused a battle in my heart between selfishness and thinking biblically. Um, I would often let that discontentment take me on a spiral downward to the I deserve mentality, grumbling and complaining in my heart that, yeah, you're right, I never get enough me time. So before I go on, I want to say what I'm not saying, and I'm not saying that it's not good to prioritize taking care of ourselves. To eat healthy, get exercise, get good sleep, deal with stressful situations that come upon us, go on a date night, a girls weekend, a spa day, or just getting a way to get refreshed. All of those are good things and right desires and can be attained in a God-honoring way. But I want to challenge you that when you hear the word self-care, that you think of it through the lens of the Wellspring Disciplines. And I began to do this as I prayerfully considered how do I answer my dad and not let that spiral me in a place I don't want to go so that I can inform myself and others what I actually do to care for myself. So does somebody want to read Discipline 1? Okay. So I read God's Word every day. That's what I do to care for myself ultimately. Um, I can shepherd my heart with it, 
I can worship God by cultivating an intimate relationship with him. Psalm 19, which we've explored earlier in Wellspring, says that God's word revives the soul and rejoices the heart. That sounds like a lot of what the world is after with self-care. Psalm 46.1 says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. That also sounds a lot like care. 1 Samuel 36 talks about how King David was greatly troubled, but strengthened himself in the Lord, which sounds a lot like care. So I can strengthen myself in the Lord through his word, and in particular, the gospel. Someone want to read Discipline 2? So I get the privilege to minister to my family with my heart fixed on God and his word. I get to share godly wisdom from his word with my husband and children. I get to shepherd precious hearts and serve my husband with love, joy, and thankfulness, all three of which kind of hit the definition of care. The Proverbs 31 woman opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. It's also said in Acts 20.35, which are Jesus' words from himself, it is more blessed to give than than receive. And blessing would kind of be what also the world is after when they think of self-care. So discipline three, last person can read that, please. So I get, I get to, we get to step into our local church and point others towards God and the gospel. I get to encourage others in my small group on a weekly basis and in between. I get to make and serve meals to those struggling physically. I get to live out Ephesians 2.10, walking in the good works that God has prepared for me beforehand, thus strengthening the body. And when the body is strengthened, I'm strengthened, which is care for myself ultimately as well. So we can see that living out the Wellspring disciplines actually fit and fulfill the self-care definition quite well as they promote healthy functioning and enhance well-being. So I hope when you see the word self-care, you think of it through the lens of God's word and the Wellspring Disciplines. Well, good morning. I am so pleased to be here with you again. My name is Cameron Dodd. Does everyone know who I am? Yeah, we're past introductions. It's like March, almost April. Today we're going to talk about a new Wellspring lesson that we haven't done before called the Survey of the Promises of God. Um, We live in a world of broken promises. We all know that the trustworthiness of a promise is entirely dependent upon the trustworthiness of the one making it. For example, Woodrow Wilson 
won re-election in 1916 with the slogan, he kept us out of war, only to enter World War I the next year. Similarly, George H.W. Bush, George Sr., um, promised, read my lips during his campaign, no new taxes, only to sign a bill raising taxes during his first and only term. Oddly enough, when you Google like the worst broken promises in history, all you get are presidents. I don't know. <laughs> We're here today to talk about a survey of the promises of God. But before we do that, we need to talk about the foundation on which the promises of God are built, namely God himself, the one making the promises. He is the source of the promises, and it helps us to know how trustworthy his promises are when we see how trustworthy his character is. But we're also going to look at the purpose, the why behind why God makes his promises, what he intends to accomplish through them, because that is also a part of the foundation on which the promises of God are built. So to that end, we are not going to begin by looking at a survey of the promises of God. We are going to start in a passage of scripture that talks about this foundation under the promises of God. So if you want to turn in your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 1, or on your phones if you don't have your Bible. 2 Peter chapter 1, we're going to be in verses 3 and 4. This epistle was written by Peter, likely right before his death, right around AD 67 or 68, since church tradition holds that Peter was killed by the emperor Nero, and Nero died in AD 68. The theme of this epistle is to expose and thwart false teachers that were infiltrating the church. So Peter is about to die, and what is his priority before he dies? It's to remind these believers of what they already know. So for a moment, before we go to our passage, look at chapter 1, verse 12. He says, Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. His audience already knew what was true, but Peter is about to die, and, and what's on his mind is to remind them of what they already know, to stay established in it. Peter knew that there were threats of false teaching, of worldliness, and that they had to remember what was true. And that's exactly my goal this morning. You might know everything I'm going to say this morning, and I hope you do. Peter's audience did. But we have to keep remembering what's true in order to stay established in the truth. Because I said last time, we're like salmon. You remember that? We're like salmon swimming upstream. And there's this whole current of the world and our own hearts that just want to sweep us away. We have to keep remembering. We have to keep swimming in order to stay established. We're constantly under the same threats of error and worldliness and the deceitfulness of our own hearts. And he says that he wants to stir you up by way of reminder. And that word for stir you up, it means to wake out of sleep, to arouse completely. It's the same word that they used when the sea was all stormy and the disciples woke Jesus up. Jesus awoke. Um, we have to keep reminding ourselves up, keep stirring ourselves up and each other up with these things to stay established in them. And that's what, that's what we do in Wellspring. That's why Wellspring is so precious. That's why we keep taking the same content as it were every year, um, because you do not graduate from these things. We have to stay established in them. If we don't keep remembering, we will forget. So with that, let's read 2 Peter 1, 
verses 3 and 4, Peter writes this, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by, that, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. This verse is familiar to many of us. The context is sanctification. It's, it's about us becoming more like Christ, increasing in holiness. And according to this passage, the believer has all things that pertain to life and godliness. That, that word in the Greek for all things, it's actually put at the front of the Greek sentence, and that's where you put it for emphasis. It's emphasizing the completeness of what we have. We lack nothing spiritually to fight our sin and to grow in holiness. And note that the granting of these things is a past action. It's, it's already happened. This happened when we got saved. This happened, it says, through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. That is the effectual call of salvation. Um, this is when his divine power granted to us all of these things. It has already happened. Romans 8.30 says, And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also called. It's that same call of salvation, and it was then when we were granted these things. So we want to know how trustworthy the promises of God are. And this passage talks about the promises of God. So the first thing we're going to look at, and I believe the first point on your outline, is that we're going to look at the source of the promises of God. The source of the promises of God, which we find in verse 3. It says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. We do not have in ourselves what we need for life and godliness. We cannot sanctify ourselves. We have no power. It's, it's like we're a light bulb, which apart from being plugged in, has no electricity. Our power comes from another source, and that source is his divine power that grants us all of these things. So the question is, whose divine power? Prior to studying this passage, I would have told you that it's God, God the Father. It's his divine power that grants us all things. But actually, the antecedent I love that word. I don't know why. The antecedent, the referent for that pronoun, his, is actually found in the verse right before it, where Peter writes, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. For that, and a couple of other reasons, primarily being that we don't usually put, um, in Scripture, we don't put divine next to God because it's already there. So usually when we see divine, it's actually pointing out the deity of Christ. This his is actually referring to the power of Christ. It is Christ's power that has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Think about the power of Christ. Matthew 24, 30 says, They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Or Mark 5, 30, when power goes out of Jesus to heal a woman with a discharge of blood. In Romans 1, 4, Paul declares the gospel concerning Jesus, who was declared to be the Son of God in power. 1 Corinthians 1.22, Paul says, We preach Christ crucified, Christ the power of God. In 2 Corinthians 12.9, Paul recounts how Jesus said, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power, and that's Jesus speaking, my power is made perfect in weakness. And Paul says, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Jesus had power to heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out demons, control nature, and pick up his own life from the grave. That's the power that has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. It's Christ who imparts this power to help us fight our sin, 
love God more, grow in holiness. And there's a sweetness to the fact that it's Christ's power that grants us everything we need to become more like him. And this power only comes to us when we know him. It says, through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. At salvation, we were called to God's glory, to God's excellence. That word for excellence means virtue or moral goodness. And we were called to his glory. Do we know the glory and excellence of God? When we talk about the glory of God, we are talking about the sum total of his attributes. We are talking about God's character. So when we talk about God's glory, we're talking about his character. How do we know this? In, in Exodus 33, when Moses said, show me your glory, what did God respond? God responded, Moses says, show me your glory. And God responds, I will make all my goodness pass before you. And then when he actually passes before Moses in Exodus 34, this is what he said when he was going to pass his goodness before Moses and show Moses his glory. He said, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Moses says, show me your glory. And God responds, my glory is who I am. When we were saved, when we came to know Christ, we were saved through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory. So in order to see how trustworthy God's promises are today, we're going to remind ourselves of some of these attributes that make up the glory of God to see how trustworthy he is, because we don't want to forget that foundation. And each one of these attributes is absolutely trustworthy. In Malachi 3.16, God says, I, the Lord, do not change. He doesn't grow in each of these attributes. He doesn't increase or decrease in any of them. He will never lose one iota of any of them. Each part of who God is is perfectly glorious forever. The first attribute here is, is God's holiness. In Isaiah 6.3, it says, when Isaiah is given a vision of in heaven, the seraphim are crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. God is set apart, totally unstained from any sin or inclination to sin. He's not like us. First John 1.5 says, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. There is not a single part of God's character that has any thought or desire for anything other than absolute purity and righteousness. We can trust that every promise God makes is an expression of his holiness, this perfect purity and his righteousness. God is also sovereign. Psalm 115.3 says, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. He is sovereign. He is in control of every molecule in the universe. Isaiah 45.7 says, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Isaiah 46, 9 says, For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. God can say that with absolute surety because he has every or he's already ordained every moment of the future. And he knows that there's not a force on earth that is stronger than him that could ever thwart any of his purposes. Which brings us to our next attribute, that he's powerful. Psalm 62 says, power belongs to God. God is able to accomplish the things he desires because no one is more powerful than God. There is not a force on earth that is more powerful than God. He has no rivals. Nothing can thwart his purposes. Daniel 4.35 says, none can stay his hand. Isaiah 43.12 says, I am he. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work and who can turn it back? And similarly in Job 
at the end, after Job has complained about his circumstances and the Lord has rebuked him, Job says in 42 um, verse 2, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. So we can trust that every promise God makes is guaranteed by his sovereignty, by his power. He's also wise. Proverbs 2, 6 says, For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. God is infinitely wise. Wisdom being that attribute of God which is able to discern what is the very best plan or action at all times. And oftentimes what is wisest and best is not anything that we would imagine, like pardoning sinners. And that's the context of Isaiah 55 where the Lord is saying, let the wicked forsake his way, let him return to the Lord, that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. And then he says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than your than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God is infinitely wise. He plans things that we would never imagine, and they are always better. We can trust that every promise that God makes is according to his infinite wisdom. And he's good. We can trust God's promises to be good. Psalm 119.68 says, you are good and do good. And he is he's the definition of good. God doesn't do something because it's good. Something is good because God does it. Not only is God good inherently, but we know from Romans 8.28, another very familiar verse, that he actually is working everything for good for the one who loves him. Romans 8.28 says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So we can trust that every promise that God makes is good, and it's for our good. These are intrinsic qualities God has. And in Exodus 34, that passage that I read earlier, he talks about his mercy, his grace, how he abounds in steadfast love, how he's faithful. God is love, is what 1 John 4, 8 says. There are just so many attributes of God that we could talk about this morning. He's love. His love isn't motivated by anything in us. Romans 5, 8 says God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We can trust every promise that God makes to flow out of this character. The character of God is trustworthy. And therefore, the promises that he makes are also trustworthy. Think about the discrepancy really quickly between our character and God's character. He is good and righteous and holy and trustworthy and wise, and we are none of those things. Jeremiah 17, 9 says that our hearts are deceitful above all things, that they're desperately sick. Romans 3 talks about how there is none righteous, no, not one. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. I mean, we would all agree that there's none righteous. I think everyone on this earth would probably agree that we all make mistakes, that, that there's no perfect people. But that's not what God's word says. God, God's word says that it's actually much worse than that. It's not just that we just make mistakes. It's that our sin together, we have become worthless. We, apart from Christ, are like that because of our sin, but he is infinitely worthy. So it's no wonder that Proverbs 3, 5 says to trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Because we can't trust ourselves. But God is not like us. He is better, and we can trust God's promises because God himself is trustworthy. So we start here because if you're not absolutely sure of the source of God's promises, of his character, then your confidence in his promises will be small. Our hope and our confidence isn't first and most in the promises of God and what he can do for us, but it's in God himself, who he is to us. 
Do we know this source? Do you know this source? Do you know his glory and, and excellence? The context of 2 Peter 1 is our sanctification, but we don't have any access to that divine power unless we first know him, unless we have first been called to his glory and excellence. And believer, are we reminding ourselves of these things? Are we coming before this book, before our Bibles, and crying out, show me your glory. Let me see who you are all over again. Let me not forget. Let me stay established in these things. The source of God's promises is trustworthy because he is trustworthy. And next, we're going to skip over the promises themselves in the second Peter passage for a second. And we're going to go to, we're going to look at the purpose of the promises of God, which is the second point there, this, the purpose of the promises of God. It says, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. If I had asked you, I know a lot of you did the homework, but if I had asked you before, what is the purpose of the promises of God, what would you have said? I, I, I might have said to give us comfort in this life, um, to help us navigate difficult times when they come. And the promises of God do do those things, but that is not their primary purpose according to God's word. The, their primary purpose is that we may become partakers of the divine nature. The purpose of the promises of God is our sanctification. It is The goal is to make us more like Christ. Before salvation, this was impossible. We, we, we were enslaved to, to the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. But in Christ, we've been called to God's glory and excellence, and we can actually now grow to look more like him. So remember what the promises of God are not. They're, they're not designed to make our lives easier, actually, here on this earth. They're not designed as some sort of promise compilation self-help book. They're not designed to make us more successful temporally or materially. They're not designed so that we can have our best life now because our best life is not now. Um, the promises of God are designed to make us more like Christ. That word partakers um, means sharer, partner, can be translated as fellowship. As, as 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. God has intrinsic glory that we just talked about, but he also dispenses glory to us. He also allows us to become more like him in glory. That doesn't happen overnight. That happens by degree, by degree, by degree, tiny, tiny degrees. And the goal is glory. And this gets at the bigger purpose, the bigger why behind why God keeps his promises, but behind why God does anything. Hebrews 10.23 says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Why, why, why is God so faithful to keep his promises? What is the ultimate purpose for all that he does? All that God does, including granting to us his precious and very great promises, he does for his glory. That is his ultimate purpose. He created the heavens to declare his glory. The heavens declare the glory of God, Psalm 19.1 says. He created people for his glory. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, Isaiah 43.7 says. When God makes promises, it is ultimately to put his glory on display. It is ultimately for the sake of his name, which is a phrase that the Old Testament uses a lot to talk about God's glory. It is God's name. It's his reputation that are on the line with every promise he makes. It's his glory, his character are at stake with whether or not he keeps that promise. 
His promises are not first and most about us, although we are the direct beneficiaries of that, but they are about him. David knew that God leading him to be more righteous was for that purpose. In Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, that Psalm, he says, he leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Everything God does, he does for his name's sake, including making his people more righteous, including our sanctification. This was God's purpose in salvation. On the eve of his crucifixion, when Jesus is praying about going to the cross, he says, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. This is God's purpose in sanctification. In Ephesians 1, verse 4, there's this long, the, the first chapter of Ephesians basically is just one long sentence in the Greek. And at the beginning of the sentence it says in verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, and then down in verse 12, it says, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. God's glory is the ultimate purpose behind why he does anything. And why do we mention this in a, in a, in a lesson about a, a survey of the promises of God? It's because it makes it abundantly clear that none of God's promises rest on us. They rest solely on him. And we can be sure of each promise because it is staked in the perfect, unchanging, faithful character of our God. We might let his promises fall to the ground, but he never will. Are these our purposes in our salvation, in our sanctification, in everything we do, are our purposes that his glory might be displayed in our life? We accomplish none of those things. Salvation is his. Sanctification is his. It's his divine power that grants us what we need to be more like Christ. It is all from him, and it's through him, and it's ultimately all to him. Are we after those purposes and those things? We can trust the character of God, and we can trust the purpose of God, the source and the purpose. Um, but before we move on, let's think about the trustworthiness of the promises themselves and where we find them. So, find, so the third point on your outline there is the means themselves, the promises of God. God describes his promises here in this verse as precious and very great. It says um, that he called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. That word precious means of great price or valuable as having recognized value in the eyes of the beholder. It's the same word used in Revelation 21 to describe the, the precious stones that adorn the foundation of the wall of the New Jerusalem, like sapphire and emeralds. It's they're, they're precious, they're, they have value. That's how God sees his promises. And they're very great. And that word is just literally large, great, in the widest sense. Just the breadth is the idea. And that, that's how God, God views his promises. And, and we have to ask, where do we find the promises of God? We find them in God's word. And so is God's word trustworthy as that final piece of this foundation? We're going to look at a few ways that, in which God's word is trustworthy. A few things in which we can trust God's word for. And this is just important because we come to our Bibles and our confidence in our Bibles um, has to be strong. We have to, we have to know that our Bibles are trustworthy. So the first part here, the number one under that, um, the means, is we can trust God's word to be truth. John 17, 17 says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. That's how Jesus prays. God's word is the only source of truth. Secondly, we can trust God's word to sanctify us. Same verse sanctify them in the truth. God's word is truth and it sanctifies us. Going to church does not sanctify you. Going to small group does not sanctify you. 
Reading good Christian books doesn't sanctify you. Those are all good things. Those are all things we must do. But it is God's word. It is, it is truth that sanctifies us. God's word does that. Thirdly, we can trust God's word to discern our hearts. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. As we talked about in Jeremiah 17.9, we cannot trust our hearts to see ourselves rightly. We can't discern our own hearts. We're constantly deceiving ourselves into thinking we're better than we are. But we can trust God's word to do that, to discern our hearts. Fourthly, we can trust God's word to be profitable. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We can trust God's word to do all of those things, to make us complete and equipped. Fifthly, we can trust God's word to be sufficient. Sufficient for what? Sufficient for salvation. Romans 10, 17 says faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Sufficient for sanctification, as we just saw, 2 Peter 1, 4. His divine power is granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And we can trust that God's word has everything we need in and of itself. We don't need psychology or, or worldly wisdom to complete us in Christ. God's word all on its own is sufficient. Sixthly, we can trust God's word to be trustworthy. Every word of God proves true. That's what Proverbs 30, verse 5 says. Every promise, every word in your Bible proves true. You can trust every word in your Bible, including the genealogies and the names you cannot pronounce. <laughs> Seventhly, we can trust God's word to always succeed. And what do I mean by that? Not that every time we read it, someone gets saved. Rather, we can trust that it will never fail to accomplish the purpose God has for it. In Isaiah 55, verses 10 and 11, it says, God says, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. We can trust the word of God to always succeed in the purpose God has for it. When we don't see our friends or our family members listening to it, when we don't see hearts changing, we can rest assured it is not for lack of power, um, but it is according to God's good purpose. His word never fails to accomplish exactly what he, what he wills. And finally, eighthly, we can trust God's word to stand forever. Isaiah 40, verse 8 says, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. We can trust that not only will God's word never fail, it will also never change. There are laws in this country that seemed so rock solid for a time, and those laws are changing. They are not trustworthy. That is not a rock upon which we can stand, but God's word is. It will never change. We can trust that even if our words change or fail, even if our government's words change or fail, God's word never will. It will stand forever. And there's a lot more that we could say. Psalm 19, which was mentioned earlier, um, says that God's, we can trust God's word to be perfect, to revive our soul, to be pure, to enlighten our eyes, to be sure, to make wise the simple, to be right, to rejoice the heart, to be true, to be righteous. How trustworthy is God's word where we find the promises of God? How trustworthy are our Bibles? They're more trustworthy. It's more trustworthy than our hearts. It's more trustworthy than any wisdom this world has to offer. It's more trustworthy than any other book or philosophy or psychology on this earth. The source of the promises of God, this book, 
is infallible. Every word of God proves true. So the source of God's promises are trustworthy because it's, it's the character of God. The purpose of God's promise, of God's promises is trustworthy. It's for our sanctification and ultimately for his glory. And the promises themselves are trustworthy because every word of God proves true. So now, who's ready to talk about a survey of the promises of God? We got there. Um, a couple of notes before we start. This is not exhaustive. Someone gives you the title, Survey of the Promises of God. You're like, what? <laughs> like, I have an hour. Um, so I will not be able, as we go through these promises, to exposit these passages, to give a lot of context. We'll be focusing on the promises themselves and implications for our lives. And we have to address a couple of hermeneutical principles. It's a big word. Um, hermeneutics meaning just principles which, which help us interpret God's word correctly. Every promise of God is sure, but not every promise of God in our Bibles is for us. There is context involved. There's the famous example of Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to give you hope. And that promise of God is sure, and it's true, but that promise was given to the nation of Israel about a specific time in history. That promise is not for us in its application. So we don't take every promise of God and apply it to our lives as we see fit. We let context determine who that promise of God was for. It's just like we wouldn't read the story of Noah and go out and start building a boat because that promise was not for us. It was for Noah. And that would just be silly. <laughs> but those promises that don't apply to us, um, they are still profitable. Second Timothy 3.16, which I mentioned earlier, all scripture is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And look, Jeremiah 29.11 tells us that God keeps his promises. You know, he kept, um, he keeps his promises to Israel. He will keep all of his promises to Israel. And that tells us something about the character of God that he keeps his promises. <clears throat> so without further ado, survey of the promises of God. I, I've just chosen a few categories. And because of time, um, that second one, our circumstances, I'm going to try to combine a little bit with the first one. The first category of promises, we're going to look at God's promises for anxiety. God's promises for anxiety. If you want to turn to Luke chapter 12. This is Jesus talking. He's just gotten done talking about a parable of a rich man whose treasure was on this earth and um, talking about how believers are different. We don't lay up treasures on this earth. And he turns to his disciples and he says in verse 22, and again, because of time, we're just going to kind of be skipping around in this passage. <clears throat> verse 22, he says, Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on, for life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, they neither sow nor reap, they have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And then skip down to 27. Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. And the promise is actually that very last part. These things will be added to you. But first, I want you to note the command. It says, do not be anxious. Essentially, about anything in this life. It says what, we're, what we eat or what we wear. But the idea is future needs being provided for. 
And he says, do not be anxious. And so the first note here is that anxiety, that that's a command. And so when we are anxious, we are actually sinning. Anxiety is sin. And our culture doesn't like to say that. But when there are commands in scripture and we choose to disobey those commands, that is sin and we need to repent. Anxiety is sin. So what would keep us as believers from obeying this command to not be anxious? Like, oh, don't be anxious. Fine. (laughs) You know, it's it's unbelief. The obstacle to that faith is unbelief. Verse Verse 28 says, Jesus says, oh, you have little faith. Anxiety is a lack of faith. It's an issue of believing God is who he says he is and will do what he promises to do. We are anxious when life's circumstances seem uncertain because we stop believing God will take care of us. We say to ourselves, what if God doesn't give me what I need? This is a lack of faith. We are not trusting him when we do this. And Jesus is kind here to help us in our unbelief. And he does that by reminding us of two truths here. So the first truth is that your father cares for you. Jesus points to the birds and he says, see, God feeds them. And he points to the flowers and he says, see, God clothes the grass. And then in verse 24, he says, of how much more value are you? You are valuable to God. What makes us valuable to God? Well, it's, it's nothing in ourselves, right? He says down in verse 30, Note the relationship that he introduces here. He says, your father knows that you need them. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your father knows that you need them. We are no longer under the wrath of God. We have been adopted into his family. He is our father. We are his children. Are your children valuable to you? Is your child more valuable to you than a bird that lands in your yard? Or is your child more valuable to you than... The grass that's on your lawn. There's not even a comparison. Or if you're if you're if you babysit, are the children you're watching more valuable than the bird that lands in the yard? I hope so. <laughs> Otherwise, you could not be babysitting. There's not a comparison between my my four children and birds, much less grass. He is our father. We are valuable to him because in Christ we are his children. 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7, which is another passage that mentions anxiety, tells us to cast our anxieties on him because he cares for you. In order to not be anxious, we have to believe that God is our father, that we are valuable to him because we are his children in Christ. And like a father, that he will provide for us exactly what we need, even though it may not be what what we think that we need, the way that he provides it. But the second truth that Jesus gives here, truth number two, is that your father knows what you need. And we just read this in verse 30, right? It says, do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried for all the nations of the world seek after these things. And your father knows that you need them. As parents, our kids often think that they need things. Depending on your age, it's going to be different things. Um, they might, I mean, my, my oldest is always needing new clothes, she thinks. Um, <laughs> Or, I, or if your kids are younger, it'll be like, I need more candy, or if they're like a 14-year-old boy or something. But what our kids think that they need is not always what's best for them. And we know that as, as, as parents. And listen, we have a good father who promises to give us good things, and he knows better than we do about what it is we actually need. Matthew 7, 11, 
which is another promise that I go to with anxiety, says, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Our Father promises to give us good things. He knows what we need better than we do. But listen, God knows that what we need more than food or clothing, more than health, what we need more than a a believing spouse or children who follow the Lord, what we need more than any earthly or temporal provision is spiritual provision. And as a believer, our greatest desire is to be more like Christ and more holy. So our greatest need on this earth will always be more of him, and he gives us exactly what we need to that end. In the parallel passage to that Matthew 7 verse, in Luke 11, Jesus tells us what good things he had in mind there. It says, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? We need more of him. And similarly, that favorite verse in, in Romans 8, 28, about how all things work together for good who love God. Um, the next verse in Romans 8, 29, tells us all what, what that good entails. And those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Paul's definition of, of circumstances working for good is that which makes us more like Christ. And here we come to the promise in verse 31. It says, instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. And back up to verse 30. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Your father will give you exactly what you need. That's the promise. We fight anxiety by reminding ourselves of these truths, that God is my heavenly father. I am valuable to him because I am his child. He knows exactly what I need, and he promises to give that to me, even if it's different from what I think I need. You can trust that your father will give you exactly what you need. And we can't skip the first part of that promise, starting in verse 29. It says, for all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. The Matthew parallel says, seek, his king- seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Look, when we're anxious and fretting about the things of this life, we do not look very much like children who trust their father to provide. We actually look like the world, for all the nations are seeking after these things. Do not seek what you are to eat and drink. Um, And why? Because that's what the world does. They're constantly asking what if questions, right? What if I don't have enough time to do what I need to do? Or what if my husband loses his job? Or I lose my job? Or we don't have enough money? Or isn't our anxiety, our unbelief often marked by asking these what if questions about the future? The unbeliever is anxious about those things because they don't have the assurance of a heavenly father who has promised to give them exactly what they need, exactly when they need it. But the believer has this assurance. We don't have to ask those what-if questions that everyone else asks because we have a heavenly father who has promised to give us exactly what we need. And and that's his business. And our business is is to seek his kingdom, to seek righteousness. And this passage was so helpful and convicting for me all at the same time because in preparing to do this lesson, I had a bunch of speaking engagements converging all at once and I was anxious that God wasn't going to give me enough time to do what I need to do or, or the ability that I thought I needed. And I, I was anxious because I was not believing that, that he had the ability or desire to provide me what I, what I needed, what I thought I needed. And I realized I was seeking the wrong things. I was seeking more time, you know. But really what I was supposed to be seeking was more righteousness, just growing in holiness with these circumstances. I needed to seek more of his kingdom. Do you believe this promise this morning? If you're anxious about something in your life, there's probably somewhere a lack of faith 
a lack of trusting that God knows what you need, that he cares, that he will do as he has promised and give you exactly what you need. You can ask yourself, am I seeking the right things? Am I seeking his kingdom, his righteousness in this area in which I'm anxious? Am I believing God's promises? Am I trusting his character? Not being anxious doesn't mean we never think or plan about the future. It doesn't mean that hard things aren't going to happen. We're still called to pray. We're still called to, to ask our Heavenly Father for things. Philippians 4, 6, and 7, another promise says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. We're called to tell our Father what we need, and then to trust Him. And He promises us peace. So we fight anxiety with these promises. We say, Lord, anxiety is sin. It is not trusting you. I have this need right now. You already know what it is. You know how I would like for it to be resolved. But Lord, I trust that you know better than I do because I know that you're wise, that you are good, that you're my father and you care for me as your child. And so I leave these requests in your hands and I'll wait on whatever answer you deem best for your glory and for my good. Help me to seek your kingdom in the meantime and trust you. Do you see how these promises aid us in our sanctification, like Second Peter says? The more we believe these promises, the more we're not anxious, the more we're like Christ. I mean, First Peter chapter 2 says, in the midst of his trial and agony, he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus was not anxious, even being crucified, even looking forward to that crucifixion. We become more like him. The second category we're going to talk about, we're actually going to skip to the third one, um, and that's wisdom. God's promises for wisdom. In James chapter 1, verse 5, if you want to turn there, there is a promise here for wisdom. And it says in James 1, 5, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. This is a promise I have often relied on as a single parent. Kids come in my room at night after I've laid everybody down and they've got something really heavy to talk about. I'm like grabbing my Bible and they're talking to me about stuff and I'm praying this verse. Wisdom, again, is that which is able to discern what is the very best plan or action at all times. James says, if any of you lack wisdom, but apart from Christ, that's all of us. Proverbs 28, 26 says, Whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool, but he who walks in wisdom will be delivered. It also says, Be not wise in your own eyes. So where, where does wisdom come from? It comes from God. And God speaks through his word. So if we want to be wise friends, we will be in our Bibles, searching out what God says. And the promise here is that if we ask, he will give it to us. And what would keep us from being dependent on God for wisdom? Well, usually, at least in my life, that would be pride, either intentionally or unintentionally thinking that I, I already know what's best. I had an experience of this not so long ago. I, had an, I have a neighbor, an older gentleman, who was really struggling with my dog barking outside whenever we would leave him outside. He wanted me to put a shock collar on my dog. Um, and then there was this day where he, I left the house and he sent me a not-so-nice not text with some coarse language in it. And like talking to me in a way I'm not often spoken to. And I was angry for a minute, but uh, I was so proud of myself. You know, I went back, calmed down. I, I was able to have self-control, and I told him I wanted to be a good neighbor to him. But I actually wanted my dog to bark. Like I don't want to put a shot collar on him because I'm a single mom. I actually want him to bark. Um, 
and I, I was going to try my best at every night to make sure when the sun goes down that he will be inside so my neighbors can sleep, but that sometimes he might bark outside during the day because he's a dog. And I thought I nailed the whole thing. I thought I did so good. I thought I was so holy. So I was talking to one of our pastors about this situation, and here's what I was expecting. I mean, this is also subconscious at the time, but I was expecting empathy, maybe some protectiveness. Don't go talk to that neighbor again by yourself, you know? I show him the text, you know? And um, so he's pulling up the Bible on his phone, and he reads this proverb about how a man's gift goes before him and grants him favor in people's eyes. And I'm like, what does this have to do with my circumstances? And he goes, so you should bake him cookies. <coughs> and I'm like, what? Bake him cookies? I was trying, and the whole time he's talking, trying to justify myself, like, oh, it's because he's a man. He doesn't understand, you know? <laughs> no, no, no. He was just he was just right. He was just telling me what God's word says. He was just being wise. And then, and then I walk away, and like five minutes later, I'm like, he is right, because it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. This man does, is, does not know Jesus, you know? When we are reviled, we're called to bless, Right? And I realized that in my heart, I was still slandering this person. I wasn't forgiving him. I was not going to make him cookies. I thought I had wisdom at the time, but I wasn't really asking God. So what are some things that we learn about biblical wisdom? Proverbs 11.2 says that with the humble, there's wisdom. Proverbs 13.1 tells us for children that a wise son heeds instruction. Proverbs 13.10 says wisdom is found in those who take advice. The wisdom of the prudent is to give thought to their ways. Proverbs 14.8, a wise man keeps himself under control. Proverbs 29.11, the book of James, the, the, this book where this verse is found, and chapter 3, verse 17 tells us about wisdom, that it's pure, it's peaceable, it's gentle, it's open to reason, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial, sincere. There are lots of things that God's word has to say about what wise living looks like. And God's promise here is that if you lack wisdom, ask God, and God gives generously. He is not stingy. He doesn't shortchange us with wisdom. He gives generously to him. John Anderson says, you know, we come to him and really what we bring is our lack, right? And we get to watch him provide. Do you see your lack of wisdom this morning? Are you quick when a situation arises where you need wisdom to ask the Lord? Um, or to ask someone who knows God's word maybe better than you do? Um, in my case, to seek wisdom through God's word. Do you believe this promise that God will actually give you wisdom when you ask when you're parenting your child and you're like, I do not know. <laughs> I do not know what to do here. Do you believe this promise? I don't know what to do, but the Lord does. I'm going to ask him and I'm going to believe that he will give me what I need. And that's going to be through his word. And do you see how these promises help us to become more like Christ? The more we look away from our own wisdom and seek God's, the more like Christ we become. Let's go to the next category, God's promises for our sanctification. We're going to turn to Philippians 1, verse 6. This is Paul writing to the church in Philippi. He's just finished thanking God for the Philippians' partnership in the gospel with him from the first day they believed until the day he wrote this letter. And then he, then he says this confident statement in verse 6. He says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. This is a familiar verse to a lot of us. 
Notice where Paul's confidence is in them being sustained in their faith until its completion. It's not in their own resources. Paul's confidence wasn't in the Philippians. It's in God. And Paul can be confident because he knows God's character, that he never fails. This is a promise for our sanctification that God will complete it. And there's also a truth here that in our everyone that God saves, he sanctifies with our salvation, that he finishes it. He begins everyone in whom God begins a work. He finishes. So what hinders us from feeling this confident in our sanctification all the time? We're in a mixed condition. We still are living with sin. And sometimes there are seasons where we feel like we lose battle after battle with sin. It's easy to become discouraged, to grow weary, and to wonder if we will ever win. We, fix, we start to fix our eyes on ourselves and our own resources rather than fixing our eyes on where the power to fight that sin comes from. And we need to see some truths from Scripture to encourage us in our battle with sin. Like Paul, we have to remember that while we are called to fight and fight hard against our sin, the power to kill it does not come from us. So if we're trying in our own strength to fight our sin, using our own methods, we will become discouraged. We need to remember where the power to have victory over sin comes from. So the first truth here, we see it in chapter 2 of the same book, in verse 12 and 13, verses 12 and 13. Starting halfway through verse 12, it says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The power to fight our sin does not come from us. We know this. It comes from God. He is at work within us to work out our salvation. And this should encourage us that we should work all the harder because it is God who works in us. So where do we fix our eyes when we're struggling with temptation? We fix them on the power of God. The second truth is that our sanctification is sure because Christ is at work in us. And we just read this in 2 Peter. His divine power, Christ's divine power, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Hebrews 4, talking about Jesus, says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The same one who was able to resist sin every single time temptation came helps us when we are tempted. That's what Hebrews 2.18 says. And this gives us confidence to fight our sin. And not only is he there to help us when we're being tempted, but Jesus is interceding for us as we come to that throne of grace. Hebrews 7.25, a verse that I call to mind frequently, says, because Jesus never dies, it says, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus always lives to intercede for us. Where do we fix our eyes when we are struggling with temptation? Or where do we look when we're tempted to become weary or discouraged in our fight against sin? Well, Hebrews 12, in the same book, or in that same book I was talking about, in verses 1 and 2, it says, Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus. And he's called the founder and perfecter of our faith. Jesus died to save us, but he's also at work to finish our sanctification. And the very next verse after that says, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Jesus knows temptation. He was tempted in every way and yet without sin. And so we cry out to him. He always lives to intercede for us, and we keep our eyes fixed on Christ. And we take comfort from his endurance. We let his endurance be motivation for our endurance in our fight against sin. The third truth here is that our sanctification is sure because we have the Holy Spirit giving life to us. 
In Romans 8:11, Paul writes, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. We have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, working for our sanctification. He gives us spiritual life. Is the power of sin strong? Yes, but the power of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit at work within us is infinitely stronger. When we give in to sin, it is never for lack of power. A few years ago, Josh Kelso preached a sermon. I, I was in a season where I was super discouraged about some sin that I'd been struggling with and falling back into it over and over again. And I remember I went home, and he was just saying how it's never for lack of God's power that we give in to sin. And I went home, and I realized I just hadn't really been believing that. I had really just started to believe that I was always going to give in to the sin, <laughs> you know? Um, but it is never for lack of power. There is ample power, and that actually transformed that area of my life. We have to keep our eyes fixed on God, on, in his word, and consider over and over again that he is able to keep this promise, that there is ample power. His divine, his divine power is granted to us everything that we need for life and godliness. And listen, God's power being at work in us doesn't lighten the load of how hard we fight our sin. In that passage in 2 Peter, his divine power, the very next verse says, For this very reason, because you have his divine power, because you have his great and precious promises, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control. And Make every effort. He says, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. It's because we have these promises of sanctification that we take courage and we have confidence to work all the harder and, and, and expect the Lord to be victorious over our sin. And there are other promises about our sanctification. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, No temptation is overtaking you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation. He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Sometimes in my struggle with sin, I feel like it's like a sneak attack. You know, like my day has been going so well. I've been so holy. And then it's like, all of a sudden, I'm just drowning in my sin. But God promises that even in those moments, um, there's always a way of escape, and sometimes it's just by enduring it. And, and we, look to, we look to God's power to help in that moment because he promises that his power is enough. So listen, if you're saved, you will be sanctified. You'll be glorified. That work is ultimately God's. I mean, we can never be lost. If we are saved, we can never be lost because not only does God promise to complete our sanctification, he promises that, he can never, that we can never lose our salvation. John 10, Jesus promises that of all of his sheep, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one's able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. God never begins a work that he does not also finish. So when you're discouraged in your struggle against sin, where do we look? We, do we look to our own resources, our own power? We look to him. Do you believe that his power is stronger than your sin? Right? Do you believe this promise? You have everything you need to fight your sin. Lastly, we're going to talk about God's promises for the future. Turn to, oh, we're already in Philippians. Great. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. I'm going to read this promise. Verses 20 and 21, it says this, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. We are running a race. That's what Hebrews 12 says. Let us run a race with endurance looking to Jesus. But there is an end to that race. There is a finish line. 
there's a prize up ahead. We have a living hope. We have an inheritance that is imperishable, as 1 Peter 1 says. But Christians long for heaven, not because of what's there, but because of who's there. It's Jesus. He has bought us with his own blood. We, we long to be with him where he is. And the promise here is that he's coming back. 1 Peter 1, verse 8 says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Paul, in the book of Philippians, was so eager for this day. In verse 12, he says that he's, he's pressing on, right? And that, that word for pressing on is to aggressively chase or pursue or even to overtake. In verse 13, he says that he's forgetting what lies behind and he's straining forward to what lies ahead. And that straining forward is reaching forward to extend to stretch forward almost to reach something. Paul was striving, and he was pushing to reach this day, to reach his home, because this, he knew his home was not here. Jesus is coming back, and that promise of his coming transforms everything about our life now. We are not ooed and awed by the tarnishing trinkets of this world. We are not living to have fun. We're not living for our families. We are living to be with Christ one day. We are waiting for something better than this world. We're waiting for someone. So what keeps us from pressing on in this way? This lethargy, spiritual lethargy, forgetfulness. We grow so comfortable here in this world that we forget it's not our home. Our citizenship is in heaven. And having lived in another country for a couple of years, I know what it's like to be somewhere else and long for your home. And from it, we await a Savior. We're waiting for him. We're running our race now in such a way that we honor him while we're here so that when we see him, we're not ashamed. 1 John 3, 2, another promise says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. The day is coming where we will be with him. We will see him face to face and be like him where we will have eternal life being with him. Colossians 3, 4 says, When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Christ is our life now, but we're living now for that life we have with him later. He is coming back, and we will be with him in glory. And Jesus prayed for this in John 17, 24. He said, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory. For the Christian whose soul is blood-bought, redeemed from sin, who has tasted that the Lord is good, better than anything on this earth, there is no greater joy, there is no greater reward than to be with Jesus, to see his glory and be with him where he is, to have our lowly body transformed to be like his glorious one. This is our hope. Jesus has promised to return, and we are waiting for that day eagerly. Our lives look different because of it. My husband would go to, when we were living in Papua New Guinea, he would, we would be, when we were trying to build houses to move into the village, he would often go build houses in the village. And he'd be gone for weeks at a time. I just would be in Medang with a whole bunch of children, and it's so hot. Um, and sometimes there would be, uh, but there was also danger there in that place too, you know, so there were a lot of reasons why I wanted him to come home. But sometimes there would be contact, and sometimes there would be no contact for days because things in the village are um, unpredictable. And so the kids and I, we would just be waiting for daddy to come home, you know? And I would say soon, you know, there would usually be a day where we would be expecting him, but we weren't always sure what day that that would be, but we knew he would come. We knew he would come. He was trustworthy. He was going to get back to us. He would do everything in his power to come home. 
And so we waited eagerly for that day when we were together as a family again. And listen, there is a sense in which we have Christ now. In Matthew 28, Jesus said, Behold, I am with you always, even at the end of the age. In Hebrews 13, 5, we read the promise. He has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. There's a sense in which we have him now. But listen, we are eagerly waiting for that day. We're waiting for that day when we get to be with him face to face. That's different. When we have no more sin, we just have glory. And we just have Jesus. When we're together as a family again, there are things in this life that help us. Things that help us disconnect from this world and see a little bit more clearly our hope in heaven. Sometimes it's, you know, when hard things happen. Every, every time I see a lion kill a gazelle on a, on a documentary, I long for this day. It's so sad. You know, it's like you want the lion to feed the cubs, but also you want the gazelle to live. It's just like so much conflict, you know. It's so, it's so a result of the fall. It's like Genesis 3 right here. Um, every time I sin, I long for this day. Do you long for this day? Are you eagerly waiting for this day? Are you marked? Would people in your life say that by your life, by your conversations, that you are marked by a sense of waiting for something better? Or are you just having a great time here? And this is why we need to stir ourselves up by way of reminder, because it's so easy. When life is easy, it's easy to fall into that spiritual lethargy. But there is something better coming, and we are waiting for it. We must wait for it. Do you believe these promises? Do you believe that he's coming back? And that that day is going to be much better than any day you have here. Each and every one of these promises is trustworthy. Are we believing them? Are our perspectives being informed by them? Are our lives being transformed because of them? Are we reminding ourselves of these things every day as we sit with our Bibles open? This is where we see these promises. We must be in this book, stirring ourselves up by way of reminder so that we can come to these places and stir each other up by way of reminder so that we stay established in these things, so that we long for, these, for that day, um, so that we grow to look more like Christ. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful that every word you speak proves true, Lord, that your promises will never fail or fall, that you keep every one of them because ultimately it is your glory that is at stake. Lord, we're so thankful that we are valuable to you, that you have adopted us as your children, that we can trust that we have a heavenly Father that is going to provide everything we need on this life. Um, including for our sanctification, for life and godliness, and that, Lord, one day um, we won't have to work quite as hard because we'll just get to worship, Lord, in heaven when you come back. I just pray for every woman in this room, Lord, that there, where there is sin in her life, where there is an unbelief, a lack of faith, that she would repent, that she would joyfully just run to these promises and, and believe them, Lord, that she would run to the truths of Scripture which will never change and hide herself in them. Lord, that we would all be encouraged to want to be more like Christ, that we would want everything in our life, even if especially the things that we don't like, um, to make us more like Christ and trust you in each and every one of those circumstances. Lord, we know your character. We know that you're trustworthy. We know your purpose. We know that it's trustworthy. And we know that your promises are trustworthy. I just pray that we would walk out of this room and be women whose lives are transformed by these things, that, that our salvation and our sanctification um, would be evident to everyone around us that 
that perhaps someone might see that and ask what's different about that, Lord, that, that they might be led to you. We do love you, and we pray these things in the name of Jesus, who died and is one day coming back. Amen.